there's a little-known part of Hollywood that most people are not aware of, known as the Audience Test Preview. The recently released book, Audienceology, reveals this for the first time. Our podcast series, Don't Kill the Messenger, brings this book to life, taking a peek behind the curtain. And now, join author and entertainment research expert, Kevin Getz. I set out on a narrow way many years ago, hoping I would find true love along the broken road. But I got lost a time or two, wiped my brow and kept pushing through. I couldn't see how every sign pointed straight to you. These are the lyrics from the song Bless the Broken Road by the Rascal Flats and the inspiration for the naming of my next guest's production company, Broken Road Productions. Todd Garner, I've known Todd for a long time, has indeed, indeed been down that road. He's formerly, you know, the Disney co-head of production where I first met him. He emerged from one of the most turbulent periods in that studio's history and, you know, transitioned from executive to producer. He co-founded Revolution Studios, and then he started his own production company, Broken Road. He has developed, listen to this, overseen, executive produced or produced more than 170 films for more than a dozen studios and streaming services, including 25 films and television shows under his Broken Road banner. I think I worked on probably, Todd, maybe three quarters of them with you over the years. Probably more than three quarters, actually. But Maybe more. And by the way, I do want to mention, among all the things that Todd does, he has and has had his own wonderful podcast, Hollywood's Elite. I've been a guest on it, so I thought the only thing I could do to return that favor was to now turn the tables on you and hear your story. He is currently shooting in Hawaii and has taken the time out of his 10-hour day schedules to be here. Aloha, Todd. No. (laughs) You know what's so funny is this is the sequel to Vacation Friends, a movie that we had a very hilarious uh, preview process on. Oh, Lord. Which we can get to or we could start with start with start with so this movie is a is a 20th movie and we we started this movie in puerto rico and we shot in two weeks and wrapped in puerto rico on march 13th 2019 which was the day the world shut down so we came back seven months later and filmed this movie the first one in the heart of the pandemic no no vaccines anything and then had to do the entire preview process during COVID, had to be one of the first batch of movies that were previewing during COVID because everybody thought, oh, you know what? They've had real success doing big, big movies, doing these Zoom company-wide previews. And I remember saying to Bob Iger, I think this is a really bad idea (laughs) because (laughs) comedies are not, you know, they're so, so subjective. You know, everybody has a different idea of what a comedy was. And I'm just worried that on Zoom, it's not going to work. And using employees or not is, is not going to work. And it didn't. It didn't work at all. But then I evolved my VirtuWorks platform. And I will tell you that even in comedies, which is an online platform for screenings, even with the comedies, I have to tell you that you get is the story landing. Sure, you don't get maybe that contagious reaction and so forth about individual jokes that are working. Is the story landing? Do they care about the characters? Is the ending working? You still get that. So I always think there's tremendous value in just polling an audience, you know? 
What was great about that is I went completely crazy on everybody and your poor person that was on the call. <laughs> I was know. Like, oh, that. He went nuts. Oh, I heard and that I, last night. Your friend Todd is not happy. I went, and you let me call him. I heard you're not happy. And I said, no, I just think it doesn't work. I think it might be too early, whatever. And I then, actually think I said, WTF. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Why think, are you yelling at my people? Uh, well, Toddy. Specifically, I was yelling yeah. at everybody. And, I know, then, I know. and, then, and then we went to Vegas and you you and the Clay Tarver, right. the writer-director, went to Vegas. And my favorite thing you said is you said, Todd, we haven't had numbers like this on a comedy. Well, yeah. Well, since your last comedy. Ah. <laughs> I was like, Oh, that makes me feel Wait, what was that. the last one? What was the last one before that? Do you remember? Gosh, before that, it must have been either... Because it was te- really tested high. It's a romantic. It probably isn't a romantic, which, oh, which, wow. which previewed really well. I don't remember. But but yeah, so look, the thing about what you do, is, which is so fascinating to me, is if you don't truly understand data and testing, it, it could be a very... This process could be a very fraught with a lot of dead ends, bad roads, cul-de-sacs, and, you know, head-on collisions because, you know, it's hard. It's hard what you do. And you're so good at it. And you always give such good perspective of like, look, these are the numbers, but, Mm. and that Mm, the but is always really important because you have to know and and have the feeling for the the numbers and the screenings to be able to not make the wrong choices going forward because you can i i've worked on movies or seen movies that the scores have gotten better but the movie is not necessarily gotten exactly because it's not all about the numbers it's all about it's all also about what people are saying the quality of the response like how they're embracing it like any brand or any good brand it's you have to have sort of a love connection with it right and and no better example of that is a movie that you have to sort of fall in love with it. And if you're not going to fall in love with it, you're what we call a fence sitter. And we got to figure out how to move you to the love category, but it is not a like category. It's a love category. And so it's an emotional, it's the, we, you know, we say it's the, the science in my, my end of it. I say the science and the art of the audience instead of the art and the science. So science maybe gets a little bit more of the, alchemy, but they're both super, super important. Todd, I want to uh, find out a few things that I don't know about you. And and I know that people who are smart enough to think if I could grab some of Todd's fairy dust, I would perhaps I'll be, you know, half successful as he is. Where are you from? Like, wh- where'd you, where did all this uh, start? Well, I'm from San Fernando, actually. So you're I'm you're not, a valley I'm boy. Actually, well, yeah, Northeast Valley is northeast. Fact. Exactly. I grew up in San Fernando, uh, in the town or city of San Fernando, not just the valley. They have a wonderful mission, and, by the way, right? Yeah, beautiful yeah, mission. And uh, I uh, didn't. I have no no family in in the business, no connection really to the business, other than when I was a kid, just loved telling stories, and then really just got into comedy of like making my friends laugh and making tapes and making things that just made us laugh and so when i got into high school i i thought i thought i would probably be a stand-up comic but that that turns out to be really hard <laughs> and, uh, and, and gutsy <laughs> and, yeah really hard and so um i thought well hmm if i don't do that you know what's another way to be able to entertain people make people laugh and so i started writing uh we did a lot of sketch i created like a sketch show in high school we did a ton of sketch i wrote and directed uh 
I guess the closest thing would be Saturday Night Live, but in, in high school. You mean like theater. the A through the AV department, that kind of thing? The no, AV club? We put, put on shows, like legit hour, 90 minute shows for the school. Oh, oh, live. Live. Oh. Yeah, that were skits, like wow. Saturday Night Live. Like, and, uh, you know, back then we didn't have video. You know, I'm, <laughs> that yeah. didn't exist. Like, yeah, yeah, video yeah, yeah. kind of came out right after right. I graduated from high school. And then, you know, from theater, I uh, thought, oh, may- maybe I-, I would like to do movies. Maybe, uh, maybe that's my calling. And I and I happened to go to a, a college in California called Occidental College, which is a very small liberal arts college, and uh, d- didn't have a film program at all. Had art art program. So sure, I sure. Had, I have two degrees: a degree in economics and a degree in art. Because there was no way my father was just going to let me have an art degree oh, from, oh, from especially college. If, if he was paying for it. Yes. And he's a very traditional guy. Doesn't still, still to this day. Doesn't understand what art, you do. Doesn't understand. And sends me articles like, Hey, heard, uh, heard producing is getting harder. Are you okay? <laughs> my, like, my father does the exact same thing. Hey, Kev, do you know about this thing? It's called, uh, you know, holy shit. You could, your, 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 your business could be in trouble. I, I don't, that's how my father talks. He's are 91. The streaming wars affecting you. I'm like, well, other than making <laughs> 11 streaming movies. Yeah. Right, now. right, right. Um, but, um, so, uh, so yeah, so then I went to Oxnard College and then I actually, my first job in the business, I was an editor. Um, so I learned how to edit. Uh, I did commercials and music videos. And, I'm looking and at Gary in, uh, in, in our, in our booth here at, and, uh, he's, he's perked up when you said that. <laughs> well, it really was the best thing I've ever done because I use it. Oh, absolutely. Every day. Oh, and you're um, so, you're so good at it. I have to just break in and say that because what you do is you, you are one of those rare filmmakers who can, because you were on, I think, the, both the executive side, which gave you an arm's length sort of view of the process, and then actually in the weeds, you got to use that skill set to know how to appropriately cut in a, in a way that, that was doable, because a lot of people propose things, but they don't have the footage, they don't have the, and you knew how to do that always. I always noticed that about you. Oh, thank you. I mean, one of the one of the first times I ever used it in the movie business. My first movie was Father of the Bride. <clears throat> uh, I was a very new CEO, junior executive, yeah, development yeah. executive, creative executive. And I was sitting in back then. We watched dailies all together. That's where I first street. met you on Father of the Bride, by the way. Uh, I, yeah, I worked yeah, on yeah. That, yeah. We uh, we would watch dailies in a screening room all together, and I remember watching the dailies and. It was myself, the the senior executive, and I think maybe David Hoberman might have been the president at the time. Or and um, we're all sitting in there and and watching the dailies. Like, ooh, ew. Charles Shire and Nancy Myers d- uh, directed it, and like, ooh, ooh, they just jumped the line. Uh. And the senior executive was like, "What?" And I go, "Ooh, that's not going to cut." And the senior executive was like, "After the dailies were over, I said, listen." You do not ever say anything like that again in daily. <gasps> and I go, why? And she goes, you don't know enough to, to, to ask the right that. questions. And the next day, Charles texted and said, shit, we jumped the line on that. We have to reshoot. <laughs> oh, Lord. So the best. On, nobody ever questioned that. I did. Uh, you forgot to tell us who that person was. No, I'm joking. No, you don't have okay. to. <laughs> I know. I, uh, I think I, I can make three guesses. <laughs> That's wonderful. And from then on, I, I you know, no one ever 
thought, oh, he doesn't know how to edit. And so the thing about editing is obviously, yes, when we're in your neck of the woods and we're doing those previews, you already start thinking like, oh, okay, we got to cut that. I can lose that. I can loop this over that. I've got coverage to be able to compress this. This seems too long. I can get rid of this character, all that stuff. But while you're shooting, you can also just be in your head going, okay, we have enough you know, so there's like sometimes there's like five, six, seven page scenes out here. I mean, we're literally on the beach, you know, with an eight page scene. And, you know, as long as you have overs and you got close ups, because, you know, this is this is a vacation friends, too. So we have four core cast members and two new cast members. So you have six people. I always feel confident that you don't have to get every take exactly right. Every word exactly right. You have enough. To cut around. Do you have, um, are you using only one camera per setup? Are you using a B camera also, which is a very common technique now? In comedy, we always try to use two cameras. I mean, in a perfect world, if you could cross shoot everything, which means like if you and I are having this conversation, a close up on you and a close up on me, that's ideal because you never know. Never know where those happy surprises are going to come, right? Somebody can just do a little improv. And sometimes the reaction to the improv is the funniest thing. And it's very hard if someone does an improv to go, okay, all right, now, Kev, remember, remember how you felt the first time you heard that an hour and a half ago? Exactly. So it never, you try, and it, not never is a strong word, but you, very rarely do you get that honest reaction. So if you can be cross shooting and you can be improving, you just have infinitely more chances to make something better. And I love that. And I know in um, movies that I've produced in the past, we've, we've done things like, uh, one would be more in if it's if you're doing like a two shot, you could do one more in a sort of a medium and one more of a wide or one in a close up. And one you can play around a little bit, particularly if you're on a very small budget and you don't have the ability to do a full out over and over again in different angles. You can light for like doing, uh, you know, two different almost setups at the same time, yeah. which is really cool. I mean, o- o- overs over the shoulders are your friend in comedy because you have both characters in the shot. But you can be on someone's back and loop a, a setup to a joke. Great point. So they're, they're always your friend. And close-ups are your biggest friend because you can be off the person. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's so funny that you, you said that about the editing because there was a, a filmmaker who recently said to me, I said, well, why are you giving us that note? And I said, because I'm editing it as I'm going. Yeah. And he said yeah. to me, don't do that. You don't want to ever do that. And I'm like, why? And I kind of remember one of my heroes who directed the last movie before he died, Dan Petrie Sr. And I always saw him see the movie, which is why he was so economical. He's every producer's dream because he was so economical in the way that he shot that I know he had to be looking exactly, editing exactly as he was going. You know, I mean, wouldn't you want to do that? Oh, yeah. One of the greatest quotes I ever heard we were shooting Black Hawk Down in Morocco, <clears throat> and it was the big scene where the Little Birds and the Blackhawks were coming in. And and I don't know the exact number, but I think it was like 21 cameras shooting at the same time. Oh, might, my might have been Lord. 19, around there. That was Ridley, and right? Charles, yeah. And Charles Newworth, who was our head of production, who is now an incredible line producer, does most of the Marvel movies. He was our head of production. He was there, and he turned, <laughs> turned to Ridley. He was sitting next to him, and he goes wow, this is a big, this is a big shot. And Ridley said, Charles, I've already seen this movie. I just have to make it. Oh, 
Oh, I have to stop for a second. That's a good one. <laughs> that is yeah. a wonderful one. Yeah, um, thank you for confirming that for me, by, you know, by the way. So tell us about your early growing up, and then you moved into sort of, you went to college and had that double major. Incidentally, the double major, I just want to say I'm working on my second book. You know, my first book is Audienceology. The second book I'm working on is called How to Score in Hollywood, and it's about getting mm-hmm. to a green light. And I just interviewed Tom Rothman at length, and one of the things he says is that his job is, you know, that fiscal and financial prudence matched with, you know, being bold creatively. And you had majors in two of those areas, which I find so fascinating. Yeah, it looks it you your father, your father was kind of a help in a way because it served you well. Right. Well, I also worked at a bank for two years because I thought I was going to go to Stanford Business School. So I went to work at Wells Fargo bank for two years, which was a crazy, incredible experience where they taught me everything I needed to know. Did you then go into an agency program after that? Or no, I, how did you get it? What happened was I went, well, I was going to go to, well, I got out of, I I was an editor. I got out of Oxy and I thought, well, I will, I want to be a producer. I don't want to be an editor. So I thought, well, I'll go to Stanford and, and kind of the, the, the train line from Occidental to Stanford was going through Wells Fargo. Because Wells Fargo back in that day used to be would used to be headquartered up in San Francisco, so a lot of people from Wells, you know, that you started in this training program, you'd go to Stanford. So I went to this training program for two years, and then crazily, this is the last part my dad will ever be a part of my career. He happened to be playing golf with a guy who was head of Paramount Domestic Television Accounting. Oh. <laughs> So basically, my dad starts talking about my career and he goes, this is the weirdest thing. It's like your son has trained his whole life for this one job. So I got a job. I was Arsenio Hall's accountant on his first year of his talk show. What experience that must have been. I knew production and I knew finance. And so I remember walking onto the stage the first day at stage 30 in Paramount going, there's 500 seats in this. Who's going to watch this show? Uh, it's a talk show. <laughs> and that show became massive. I mean, Bill Clinton would play saxophone. Remember that? Yeah, remember that. So I learned a lot about finance and accounting in, in production. But the thing it did more than anything is got me through those gates. And once you go through those gates, you jump forward three years in time in terms of where the business is. Because everything you're seeing. How long were you there? Sorry. How long were you there? I was at I was at Paramount for a year and in, in domestic television because when, once I got in there, I realized there was a job called a creative executive, which uh-huh. I never knew existed. And and you know and everything the audience is watching right now was something that was started at least three years ago. So when I was on the lot, I'm seeing things that are shooting, and I'm like, well, these things aren't going to come out for two years, right? And so. There was this job called a creative executive. I go, well, I like all those words. I, I, I'm, I'm a banker. I, 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 I want to be an executive and I think I'm creative. And so that I realized I didn't have the skills to do that job. And so in talking to people, they said, look, you got to learn how to read a script. You got to know how to break a script down. You got to learn how to develop. So I took a class at UCLA Extension from uh, Bob Greenblatt, who ultimately becomes chairman of, of Warner Brothers, who taught me how to read a script. And taught me how to break down and develop a script. And then I realized from there, after talking to everybody, guys like Jason Bateman, who I played golf ball, uh, basketball with uh, on the Paramount lot, 
that you really got to become an assistant first. So I went to uh, Columbia Pictures and became an assistant under uh, the Frank Price regime. Who was the person that you worked for? I worked for Jordan Bear, who is now an agent. <clears throat> and he, it was the time right when Peter and John took over uh, Columbia. Oh, so Lord. And they redid the whole lot. It was incredible. I was in the Thalberg building and it was just the most amazing thing to watch. Amy Pascal was an executive. Uh, John Jashney was executive. Bob Jaffe. Darius Hatch. Wasn't Chris, Chris Lee? No, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, Chris Lee. Teddy Z. Teddy Z, um, too. Oh, Lord, yeah. Teddy. And so, and then from there, I, I I realized that once you do that long enough, you learn the skills to become an, a creative executive, and that's when I went to Disney. And I was at Disney for 10 years. And you ended up getting to the top job, which is extraordinary. Nina, yeah, Nina Jacobson and I were co-presidents when I left. And you always were, um, I always looked at you and said, he's got it going on like i always oh. thought a you were extremely hot uh as a, <laughs> as <laughs> you know still are still are but also um what i loved about you and now that i work with you in even a different capacity uh we or i have come to appreciate just how decisive you are and i love that because i'm that way too and i think that's why we often see eye to eye is like you'll come in and say, okay, I like this project. I want to make it. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. Boom. And you do it. You don't think about it too much. You just effing do it. And that to me is like gold. And it's the reason you get to 170 movies, quite frankly. There's many people who are talented in our business, but few have the sort of that wonderful left and right brain that you can, you know, be creative, but also get stuff done. And you are really a guy who who gets green lights, who gets things made. You're a wonderful closer. Yeah, I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from Jerry Bruckheimer, who just said, look, I just make movies for me. I, I don't know how to make movies for other people. And anytime I've <clears throat> ever tried to <clears throat> guess what an audience would be for a movie, it's not. it's never worked out. If I connect to it, but in some level, I mean, look, I've made all genres. I've made female-driven movies, male-driven movies. But I, there's, if there's always, there's always something I can connect to emotionally in it, in yes. the story or in the character. Then it generally works out. You know, it's like it's anytime I'm like, or somebody else is doing that. So let me try that. That seems like the audience wants that. I just, I'm just not great at it. It's, so when I stick to my lane. I mean, one of the things I talked about when I started my podcast was I had an experience once when I was at a Nashville film festival. Marty Bowen had invited me to the Nashville Film Festival and I was there and I was with like Academy Award winners and Marty, who had just come off of Twilight. And I think movie, I think I had just made Mall Cop or something. <laughs> hey, and don't laugh. That movie made some money, didn't it? Well, yeah. And well, now you're I mean, doing a series of it or something, right? Uh, well, here's here's what's so funny about that is out of nowhere, this like older gentleman stood up and said, I have a question for Todd Garner. And he just said, why do you make such shitty movies? And and Marty was like really protective of me. and was like, uh, like ready to just rip this guy. I said, no, no, no. Let me, I, I get, I get what he's saying. I get where he's coming from. So I explained, have you ever, have you ever seen this movie called Sullivan's Travels and Sullivan's Travels is a movie where this guy is a director and he's a comedy director and he's you know maligned and people don't really give him much respect and the critics don't love him and he decides he's going to make his opus ironically called Oh Brother Where Art Thou which is a movie uh -huh. I, ultimately, I ultimately made 
with the Coen brothers, but, and he goes to prison ultimately in this journey of trying self-discovery and he sits in this prison and he just sees all these prisoners laughing at a, I think it's a three stooges movie. And he realizes what he does is important. And I, I feel the same way. Like I, I've, you've been with me. I've sat in theaters where people just laugh. And if I can give somebody like a couple hours of just a real solid entertainment where you can just forget your day, I, I think that's pretty valuable. And so, um, and I've had, you know, so many people throughout my career just tell me like, man, you say like, that movie saved me. Like just the last day I was in a shit place and yep. I laughed my ass off. And I've seen it happen in my own life where people, and you're having just the worst possible thing and you can just forget your troubles for two hours. It's pretty cool. I want to turn that on its ear for a second because I agree with you as a ticket to entry, you must have something that speaks to you, something that is your kind of clear purpose as a producer, meaning it's got to touch you in some way, whatever you're characterizing it as. Where I then have trouble with, particularly today in today's world, is you then, to me, need other data. You need audience feedback. You need to know. And I mean that because that's the art and the science or the science and the art, because you have to know the size potentially of what you're making. And you also need to know what platform it needs to sort of ultimately go on before you shoot a frame of film, I think. And the reason I say yeah. that is because of the budgeting. Otherwise, you stand to be at risk. You increase your risk yeah. exponentially. Did you agree? Where do you stand with that? I've come to you yeah. many times. I, I've come to you and said, hey, can you run some data for yeah. me on comps? Can you run some data for me on scores can you run data right. for me on and titles you and i I've, I've done right. i've gotten into the weeds right. with you so many times with the data i agree it's interesting because i've worked for joe roth you know, on my podcast i had mike metavoy i've had the big i don't want to say old time because they're still well in our but in our movie time. in modern movie they're that the new in they're the new parlance, they're the new guys greenlit the movies. that's right they're the ones they are they literally greenlit them right yeah they greenlit these movies themselves from their gut like these guys alan horn back in the day teddy and the you know, ted uh, Simmel and and daily these guys greenlit movies just from their gut and and i don't think the movies are more successful or less successful from one guy doing it or like this huge committee. But if you look at now. Mike versus Joe, if you look at Mike versus Joe for a moment, I just want to say like Mike definitely was more from the gut. To me, Joe had also and has still a wonderful marketing brain. Uh, not oh, to say yeah. that not to say that Mike doesn't. What I'm saying is like uh, Joe would say, I would love to make Platoon and I would love to make Silence of the Lambs. and I would, But he would say, well, what's the... What's the trailer look like? What's the one sheet look like? He he really understood what the, how the audience was going to per- perceive it, and I always respected that, you know, about about oh. how he approached the work. You know what I mean? He so, taught me so much. He taught me so much about that. When Jonathan Hensley and uh, Michael Bay and Jerry Bruckheimer pitched Armageddon to Joe, they didn't have a title, and all Joe said was, "It's Armageddon." And it was like, that's right. Everything clicked. That's right. And and Joe said, he goes, I love, he goes, I love one word titles that can go on billboards. Yeah. 
Hundred percent. Ransom. Hundred percent. Armageddon. Yeah. Like, you can just read them as you, you know, go by, and, so, and you get what the movie and is, and you get what it is. Home Alone. Yeah. It just says what the movie is. He taught me a lot about that, and I will say, for, especially for comedies, I mean, I am always ha- just happy to let the audience tell me if something's funny or not. Go back to what I asked about the beginning of the process, meaning, as I said, and acknowledge, you guys are rare. Good executives are, almost all of them that I've worked with are, have some extra talent. They're hard jobs, they're hard jobs to get, they're hard jobs to keep. And you do get a certain skill set of a barometer, if you will, on what really works and what doesn't. Okay, that, that's the ticket to entry. But then you're about to now green light it. In this competitive world, you've got to know, right? This is where we were going before I brought us in another direction. You've got to know what you're making and, 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 and for what price. Well, there's two ways to look at that, right? So the first one is, well, I will say this. This is an overall thing. You, 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 just, you mentioned you spoke to Neil Moritz. Before, there's guys like Neil, Marty Bowen and Wick and Lorenzo and Bo Flynn and these guys and, and, and Jerry Bruckheimer and there's tons. I mean, and their gut matches the popular world. Mm. Right? When Neil Moritz decides, I like that, he just his gut, just his innate ability is something where it's probably going to be hugely successful because he just has this innate ability to be able to put his finger on. Fast and the Furious, Sonic, et cetera, et cetera. And Marty and Wick, same way. Bo, obviously. And so they just, and Jerry, they're the, they, they just, so it, the reason why they're getting so many movies made is it's like in line with what is going to be successful. And not only that, they're supremely intelligent and they're really good at development. That's one thing. So just in the bigger overall picture, why guys like those guys get a lot of stuff made is because they instinctively know what audiences are going to want, even if it hasn't been done recently or isn't the popular thing at the moment. Like it becomes the next popular thing because just their, you know, Jerry's gut is just golden, right? And they used to call Jeffrey that too. And so Katzenberg. And so that's first. Secondarily, so there's two ways movies get greenlit. One is theatrical, which is everybody kind of comes together, reads the script and everybody comes together and they have their projections, uh, right? So uh, the domestic um, distribution has its projection, international has its projection, television, pay, cable, all the way down this revenue stream have their projections of what they think the movies are going to do. Then you, so that those, those generally have comps. So the comps are, this is a R-rated comedy. And so, and so all the creatives are like, we're going to comp, hangover and, and wedding crashes and the people that are doing the comps are like well we're not going to comp those we're going to comp more in the middle so we kind of know what the risk is and you have your high and your low estimates generally those estimates are pretty are kind of padded because people want to get bonuses and not get fired so you're already pushing your number down and your bar higher then you have marketing and publicity and marketing will be like, I don't know how to sell this movie or publicity is like, who's in it? Cause I got to get covers and talk shows. So all these people are making these decisions. And, and the reason why these decisions are so fraught with danger is because not only are you spending X amount on the physical production of the movie, you have marketing, you have domestic marketing, international marketing and home video marketing. Those three boxes are very expensive. 
And so on top of just the green light number, you've got this other number hanging out there that you are going to have to eventually commit to, which is could be sometimes more than the movie cost. And the higher the budget of the movie, the more you want to spend to protect that investment. So it just keeps it just keeps rising. So it's a very, very high bar theatrical. So that's just a pure theatrical. And has only gotten higher. Of, yeah. And, and, and a pure streaming play is, is a different proposition, right? So a pure streaming play, you're looking at a number and you have your own data and your data and their own data. And they're like, well, on this movie, the comps are so many hundred hours or so many subscribers eyeballs or so many rewatches, or that seems like something a lot of people are going to want to watch. So it should draw in a lot of eyeballs. We'll see what happens on when Top Gun hits Paramount Plus. Less. So it's like, how many new eyeballs are going to want to watch Top Gun, Maverick? And so are you going to add to that? So then those metrics come in and those people come in and go, look at this thing with these eyeballs and this thing, this movie's worth X. And that's pretty much it. I mean, that's the number, right? Because there's no other number downstream. You're not, you're not, that's right. Generally not, not buying a bunch of commercials on the Super Bowl or maybe a couple of movies here and there, a streamer will do that. But basically that's it. And so these numbers have been wildly disproportionate correct so even like an r-rated comedy that i can make for say 25 million dollars that seems to everybody like that's great you know an r-rated comedy with this actor actress and this thing great but it's not that because first of all all those people if you're you're going and and again this is the misnomer of like well comedies don't work theatrical which which isn't necessarily true but what we have learned is it's far easier for a streamer to green light one because it's that's the number 25 million bucks and they go and because yeah, and because they've been so successful on the streamers audiences have now moved towards embracing that genre romantic comedies more so and associating associating them more with the streamers than theatrical because theatrical yeah. you got to remember theatrical is is going as you said yourself Comedy is very subjective. So if you feel as though it's not going to be something that is, you know, game changing and you've heard so much about, it's going to be really hard to get a big comedy to work or, as I said, a romantic comedy because they are so easily accessible and they're not necessarily events. And and now to get people to leave their homes, of course, you need an event to get yeah. them get them and out. there will if I, and i firmly believe there will be an event and it'll change everything and there will be a wedding crashers or of course there will there of course there will and then and all of a sudden everybody will be I like know. Yeah. i mean this is look look at what's happened post pandemic it's like well no no streaming's great but let's let's stay let's keep in the theatrical marketplace but but the reason also there's a number of reasons why comedies are easier in streaming that is just an easier buy yes. To be at twenty five million dollars than say fifty, but are they right? spending because the same twenty five? The streamers on that, uh... they're spending more. And so, why the streaming wars really heated up, and why Netflix specifically could get so much material so fast is if you any movie you're making, let's just put, I'll put any studio. Let's Studio X could yeah. be Sony, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal, doesn't matter. Studio X and Netflix are going for any movie. Any of the same movie, Studio X is going to have to pay double mm-hmm. what Netflix is going to mm-hmm. have to pay mm-hmm. because Netflix generally markets to themselves, right? They generally right. will put a trailer out digitally, which means which means either 
their subscribers will enjoy the trailer or apples to apples it's a it's a it's a digital play they're also spending a, five million dollars on marketing versus 35 million dollars on marketing. if if that i mean they're really only making trailers all right and they're putting it online which doesn't really cost that much right so let uh, benefit of the doubt let's say it's five there's no way you can spend five and get a movie open anywhere right in, in the world you're spending at least 30 right so if a movie costs and then let's say that you, Kevin, you have this great movie with really good stars and you're like, it's the, the hard cost is 50 million bucks. Studio X is looking at it and go, it's not 50 guys. It's 50 plus 30, at least Correct. So that's 80, at least. And plus, you know, that's only for the domestic guys, marketing. Then you have to put yeah. the international, and then we got international and all this other stuff. And then the revenue streams, blah, blah. Netflix can just go and go, Kev, don't worry about it. We'll give you 60. Right. <laughs> Right. That's right. what would happen. Yeah, Because totally. it, it's not going to cost them 80, and it's the same yeah, proposition yeah. for them. It's- Todd, circling back to all those names you mentioned before, who was your who are your like primary mentors uh, or the people that you looked up to mostly when you were coming up as a wee lad? Well, I have a lot of mentors that I didn't know personally. Like Howard Hawks is one of my biggest mentors. I That's a guy who I love all, mostly all of his movies. <laughs> and he worked- Scarface. <laughs> I mean, he did Scott, he did worked in different genres. He did comedies, he did romantic comedies, he did thrillers. And so he he is Mel Brooks is a mentor. I've never met him. Um, you know, so I read tons of film history. Like I have eleven books sitting on my desk right now on set. I just devour film history. Because it first of all, it makes me feel better because nothing's changed since the 30s. It's exactly the same conversation. <laughs> right, right, right. And then my real life mentors, my my first real mentor was was Jeffrey. I worked for Jeffrey. Uh, 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 he, I'm in awe of him for a bunch of reasons. One is that I could never, ever keep up with him in any way, shape, or form, either his work ethic or as just his personal um, tenacity. And his the way he conducts his life is just incredible. And I learned so much from him. Joe Roth, absolutely. Probably my deepest mentor ever. Jerry Bruckheimer taught me so much about making movies. And he was really the first producer that I ever watched be on set every day and kind of taught me like, hey, man, if you want to be in the game and you want to really say something and contribute, you got to be there. You don't get to phone it in from your desk. Uh, Sandler, absolutely just massive about producing and about storytelling and about knowing your audience. Knowing your audience. He does know his audience. And being faithful to them and not giving a shit about what anybody else says. And And, and staying, and I don't mean this in a negative way, staying in your box, staying in the way. Well, I was going to say that. And then he he comes out of his box and does Punch Drunk Love with me. He does Spanglish. Did you do Punch Drunk Love? I did. Oh, I love it. That movie was very special for those who haven't seen it. You really should. It's a very, very special movie. Yeah. And then he does Uncut Gems and he does The Hustle. So the guy is just phenomenal in knowing this is my core audience. I'm going to deliver to them a product that they're going to love. And then I'm also going to do these movies where I get to just throw myself at the feet of a filmmaker I admire. And nobody watches more movies than Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler called me when we released Senior Year on Netflix before anybody and goes, it's crushing on Netflix. I'm like, wow. I don't even want to know how you know. Uh-huh. I'll take That's, and then an great. Hour later, That's great. And then an hour later, the executive called me and goes, we're crushing. And I'm like, Sandler called me an hour ago. So this guy 
is just not only is he he's probably been the most generous to me in my career in terms of just personally into my family he's just just an incredible he's a person. wonderful wonderful human being yeah. and then honestly doing 180 hours of my podcast i've learned i learned from every i learned from every single person i talked to i learned from brad fuller and Bo and neil moritz and marty and wick and like I said, Joe and Mike and just in DeLuca and like this, it's all my peers. I just, I learned so much from, and I'm, and I'm the type of person that I just, I, I'm the first guy to send an email or a text saying congratulations. Cause I know how hard it is. You know, I, I've done a lot this of podcasts, Todd, and, and, and many, many people say to me, I love that, that podcast you did with Garner. He uh, said, you, <laughs> you guys, he says you would challenge him. You, we love that. Like, because that's how you and I roll, you know. It's, so for it's anybody great. that's not looking, so for anybody that's not in the business, you don't you don't have to um, even meet these people. Like you know, you can read biographies and autobiographies and about anybody now, and really, you know, get a sense of who they are and and how and how and how they operated. I did a I did a podcast with Harry Koch Jr. and he goes. Man, you know more about me than I know. How did you know all this? I know. I did that so, podcast for the his motion picture and television fund. That one? Oh no, I did the podcast with him for his book. Oh, for his book, got it. I was a guest on his show uh, about uh, I guess a year ago, and it was great fun. And he does this wonderful job for the motion picture and television fund. Yeah. And and you should check that podcast out too because it's really it's a shout out. I'm glad we brought him up. Uh, so, what was your big break? I think my big break was honestly, I think, I mean, it's sort of, there's like, there's like many, many, there's many pinnacle moments as opposed to big breaks. Like, I mean, obviously getting the job at Disney was huge because that was right at the time. I think Pretty Woman had just been released just as I got there. And it was such an incredible time to be at Disney. And then I think for me, where my career really started to gel was, I think, I had, I, you know, I, I worked on the water boy and then I inherited Armageddon at the end. And then I did Con Air and that period of time really started to accelerate what I knew I loved. So I did, I think I've done 13 movies with Sandler, either as an actor or as a producer. And I wow. think I like nine or 10 with Jerry and that whole period at Disney really kind of cemented like what kind of movies I really loved and really wanted to work on. And there were a lot of them. And there were a lot of genres, as you we said. made a lot of movies because at that point in time, it was right. A lot of different kinds of movies, which was so yeah. interesting. And it said something about you expanding as a man and as a professional uh, and explored. Because the original movies, the uh, first movies were for more muscular uh, right, more male-driven, I would say, and you yeah. sort of evolved more into, let's call it the sensitive side, and <laughs> and uh, more of the artistic side, which is a beautiful evolution. I mean, and the greats, the great, in my opinion, you know, from Spielberg to Wilder to Hawks to so many, had that variety in their yeah. in their in their and canons, I, you know. As an executive, you you're, you're afforded more ability to do that as a producer. I remember right when I <clears throat> became a producer from Revolution, I went and spoke to D David O'Connor, who was a partner at, at CA, and he said, look, man, this is hard. Like, you, you, the business is getting harder. These deals are going to be few and far between. You're really good at comedy. Lock, lock in. 
get your get your feet under you mm. and then you can start to spread out and so i did i i did comedy out of the gate and then since then i've done you know mortal Kombat, night and day and some other some some horror stuff but look as a, as a producer when you're when you're only getting paid when a movie gets greenlit and getting a green light to one in a 10,000 proposition literally you you've got to know your strength and really push towards that and do the best you can every day in that genre or that job so like jason blum loved horror horror was dead when jason blum did his first movie it, they were all these big bloated right. huge budget right horror movies that weren't working and he did paranormal and he just laser focused into that and has become the most successful producer probably ever and and he just locked into that and just made did that and then he did whiplash and did all these other things but he just drilled down into that as hard as he could and said, I'm going to be the best I can at this and do the best I can at that. And, and then could expand. And, you know, that's what Neil did with his action franchises. And now he's spreading out into family stuff with Sonic. And, right. Very, very important. And, very important. And, Bo, and great. You know, Bo found this, yeah. Bo found this amazing partner in Dwayne and has been his a fantastic partner for Dwayne. And, and, and Dwayne has been a fantastic partner for him and they've had huge success together and you know, and and Marty and Wick and their partnership and books and things like that. So people have found their, I don't want to say niche, but found their thing that they really is the foundation of the business and built that up. And, and then once you have that strong foundation, you can start adding pieces yeah. to it that maybe are a little bit outside of what you're known for. Yeah, without question. Before we wrap this up, which I could talk to you all afternoon, uh, I <laughs> want to ask you about screenings in particular, and you. And I have been through, I call it sort of a warfare uh, on, on so many movies. Do you have a story that is memorable from a preview that perhaps because of the preview made a major change and that really affected the outcome of the movie? Oh, my God. Everyone. I mean, everyone has like a moment. And the, the other thing I was thinking, I, I, every time I see your face either when we're just out socially or, or in business. I always, if you come around the corner and I see this. <laughs> and, that was a, like, that's oh, a thumbs, oh. he's giving a thumbs up with thank, a smile. Uh, on thank his God, face. like you give me the smile and yeah. then you come around the corner. Okay, fellas, uh, we got some work to do. <laughs> right, it's like, right. you, you, I've seen it five, at least 500 times. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. coming around that corner with like, don't worry, you're in great shape or okay, we need to roll up our sleeves and get to work. So, but always so, with, but always with answers because the always the audience speaks, man. They speak, and I'm just the sort of interpreter of what they're saying, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember so many stories of that where uh, they are just, um, you know. Well, for example, like the big, the big, like there's been there's been so many, but I'll just tell you a, a couple of. I'll tell you a funny one, and then I'll tell you. Just my biggest takeaway from 30 years of doing this and 500 screenings with you. The, the, so the, the, the first one, I'll, I'll end with that. I'll end, I'll end with the funny story. But so here, my <laughs> biggest takeaway of all of it is, and we sort of touched on it for, for a moment. If you want to get your scores up, you just get rid of the stuff the audience doesn't like and give them more of the stuff they do like. <laughs> I mean, it's not that hard, right? It's not, it's not rocket science. Really, I mean, just, just pure scores. not going to make a better movie. I'm saying, look, if you want to get yeah. They like the comedy. Give more comedy. 
you know, or, and end on a huge joke. Yeah, give more of that. And if that's what you're shooting for is high scores, it's, it's, it's not saying that they're going to be high, but higher. That's what you do. What you're so good at is saying what's underneath the numbers. Like what is what is happening in your movie is this. They're not understanding this or they're not connecting to this or this ending isn't connecting because you have a problem in the beginning of the movie. That is what's been able for me to be so successful in my career is being able to sit with you and listen and talk, get into the weeds, not just about the numbers, because I, by the way, I'll tell you right now, Tomcats, go back and look has huge numbers yeah, because I, yeah. because well, I, 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 I like the movie more than the critics did actually. Well, that was your, because that was your first movie out of the gate at revolution, right? That right? we were just, it, we were just trying to see how the system worked with movie costs. us like $13 million. Right, right, right. And we were going in, not losing money, but I'll tell you, it was a self-selecting process. Cause I think the recruit was 20 to one. I didn't even understand what that meant, which meant, you ask 20 people and they're like, no, I'm not coming to see that. No, movie. it means that one, like, one, one out of every 20 are coming. One out of every yeah. 20. Would Which be is like, not, oh, a good, not a good recruit ratio. Yeah, It's awful, but weirdly, you get a higher number because you're self-selecting people who only like those kind of movies. Then you just pander to those, those people. You can get your scores up and the movie's not great by any means. And it didn't do that great. So what you're so good at is going under the numbers and saying, okay, here's, what, here's, here's, what, here's what's happening in your movie. And if you listen and you figure out, okay, let's fix that core issue, the scores not only will go up, but your movie will always be better. Mm. So that's what I'm so grateful for you, for you on. Oh, and what I've been you. terrified, if there wasn't you, most people would just go to the lowest common denominator, get rid of everything that's not good right, in the movie. And that right. could be like, I don't like that character. That I'm having an uncomfortable feeling. And you're like, that's what movies are supposed to do. They're supposed to make you uncomfortable. You're supposed to not like that character, right? Right. right. And so if you if you water that down right. and give them more sugar, you know, it's like sugar is great. It's just not good for you. Yeah. So yeah. That, thank you that, so much for you, saying that. I really do so appreciate have you that. Being able to explain that is everything. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And 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 part of the challenges in what I do often, Todd, is and he, you know you've got a movie like I, I worked on a movie this week that is now slated for January. Uh, which is, and it was the first screening and the movie is good. It could be really good. The question is, I love what Sherry Lansing used to say. She says, we're not making, we're making a movie. We're not making a release date. And she'd move the date, but because of corporate compliance and, 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 and accountability and so forth. And, you know, it's become very, very difficult to, to do, to do that. And so what, part of my interpretation needs to take into account what is realistically able to be done, i.e. Sure. Uh, no reshoots uh, or <laughs> fi- yeah. finishing the special effects. No, I mean, it's very difficult. We're in uh, October, you know, and they, they're going to have to lock in five weeks. Uh, so it's, it's really, it makes, it makes it tough because you want to be able to do even more. And so yeah. uh, I do hope that um, people begin to test their movies earlier and because you want to see if the DNA is working, if the if the uh, the sort of the story is landing, if there's any major confusions, and I think if they had done this particular movie a month before, but 
everyone was like, we don't want to show it without effects. The audience will go with it. It's okay. You don't have to do a large screening. Just get some feedback from people. Real, well, that's also, unfettered, that's unbiased an, feedback, you know? Well, that's also a problem because they're, they're shooting for scores because your marketing sometimes depends on your scores. So if you're I know, nervous- but that's danger. It's that dangerous. It's to your point. To your point. It's all dangerous. I wanna, Here's my funny story. Oh, yeah. Please. And only because I'm working with Steve Buscemi right now am I reminded of it. So <laughs> Jerry Bruckheimer always likes to test, or did, I don't know if he still does, used to like his, to test his movies in Phoenix. So we take Con Air, the first cut of Con Air, to Phoenix, and I am sitting, Joe Roth is sitting to my left. And I know the theater. My right is Michael <laughs> Eisner. I'm in the middle because I'm the executive on the movie, and if either of these gentlemen have notes, I have a pad to take notes. I think Jerry's sitting behind me, and... The movie is playing and the original cut of Con Air, that Garland Green little girl scene went on for about five minutes where Garland Green, who is played by Steve Buscemi, is the worst serial killer in the world, is sitting in a pool, a drained kiddie pool, playing dolls with this five-year-old girl. And it goes on so long that it's terrifying because you're just, oh, what is he? Oh, God, he's going to kill her right now again. And this woman stands up turns around because she knows people who with the movie are back there and screams, why are you doing this to us? Why are you doing this? This is terrible. And walks out. And Michael Eisner turns to me and goes, we're going to trim that scene down. I go, oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> Note to self. Great story. Note and self. and a very- Not so long. And a big hi to end on. Todd Garner, I love you. You're a great- great friend and uh, an inspiration in the business. And I'm just thrilled to have you as a guest. So really, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, or thank you, mahalo. Mahalo. <laughs> Aloha. Take care. Bye. Take Bye. care. Bye, buddy. What an extraordinary guy Todd is. Thank you. Thank you again. Uh, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's interview. Todd is on social media, including Instagram and Twitter at Todd underscore Garner. Also check out his podcast, The Producer's Guide, and his upcoming movie, Reunion. For other stories like this one, please check out my book, Audienceology, at Amazon or through my website at kevingets360.com. You can also follow me on my social media at kevingets360. Next time on Don't Kill the Messenger, I'll welcome Academy Award-winning film editor William Goldenberg, who has more than 20 films and television credits to his name, including Argo, The Insider, Seabiscuit, Zero Dark Thirty, and The Imitation Game. Until then, I'm Kevin Getz. And to you, our listeners, I appreciate you being part of the movie-making process. Your opinions matter.